0: Good afternoon, ladies. It is a great pleasure of mine to introduce our next speaker, Carrie Campbell Severino. As the president of the Judicial Crisis Network, she is an expert on many different judicial issues, including the constitutional limits on government, the federal nomination process, and state judicial selection. She has testified before Congress on these topics, briefs senators on judicial nominations, and regularly files briefs in high-profile Supreme Court cases. She also frequently appears on television and radio to discuss constitutional judicial issues. She's been interviewed on MSNBC, Fox, CNN, C-SPAN, and ABC's This Week, and quoted on many different types of print media. During Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation process in 2018, she logged 104 TV appearances with even more radio and print media work in favor of confirming then Judge Kavanaugh. With her experience, she is a great conservative leader and excellent role model for young conservative women. In 2019, She co-authored the best-selling book Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Court with Molly Hemingway. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Biology from Duke University and two advanced degrees, a Master of Arts in Linguistics from from Michigan State University and a Juris Doctorate from Harvard Law School. She clerked for the Honorable David B. Santel of the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit and Justice Clarence Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court. She is married to Roger Severino and is the mother of six children. Today, she will be speaking on the Supreme Court and its future. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to our speaker Carrie Campbell Severino.
1: Thanks so much. I, I, after hearing the questions for Star, I'm a little worried because I wasn't sure exactly what Supreme Court case it was either. So, uh, so I, I'm, I, you guys maybe are going to be testing me to my limits in the question period here. We'll see. Um, yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about where we are as a Supreme Court, and I think this is a perfect time to be looking at that because we are we are completing a term um, that is the first full term of the most recent justice. Uh, for not for much longer, but Justice Amy Coney Barrett, um, I think I would say the first truly conservative female justice on the court. And that is something that we can really celebrate. Her um, joining the court has marked a major transition point that kind of caps off year decades, really, of work to try to build a Supreme Court that is going to be faithful to the Constitution and the rule of law and uh, it's so exciting for me to, to see a woman kind of put the crowning uh, glory on that movement you know this is the, the supreme court for much of the last half century has been dominated by judges who instead of looking to the actual text of the laws the text of the constitution what the constitution actually uh, the words meant to the people who who passed them and who and the, and the american citizens who ratified them uh, decided that They were judges who could just kind of Go off script and write their own uh, laws. They would when they were looking at interpreting a statute. And as you know, like our statutes are passed by both houses of Congress and have to be signed by the president. There's a lot of work that goes into how is the wording look. What exactly are the is the phrasing we're using? The courts for a long time weren't even treating it that way. They would look at well, what's the purpose of this statute? Okay, well, how can we best affect the purpose of this statute? We want clean air. Okay, let's. How should we do make clean air? Not oh gosh, there's actually you know a hundred page statute here. Maybe we should look at what our elected representatives actually said and actually hashed out and, and hammered out and agreed upon. Um, so what we have seen is a big shift that has brought the court back to looking at what the laws actually are. And what this does is brings the court into a place where it is actually fulfilling its real constitutional role, and that role is to affect to the, the laws that the American people themselves have embraced. We are a democratic society. We pass our laws through the democratic process. The Constitution itself, and we, we kind of forget about it because we haven't had any amendments in in probably your lifetimes. But um, it, it, this is this is something that was ratified by the American people. we are a nation that has chosen our own governing documents. And so, if we want to change those, we don't do it by simply having five unelected judges saying, "You know what? I think." you know, we, we should we should do things differently than when it's written down. No, we have to follow the same procedure that our, our forefathers mm-hmm. did in, in passing these in the first place. And that's not to say there aren't things that we can switch and update and, and uh, improve on the Constitution, but it has to be done uh, through the proper process. And so we have seen a, a movement, I think, following some of these decades of of a court that was really out of control and was a favorite device of those on the left to Achieve their own goals. So, a lot of times, what you'd have is when a, a liberal legislature wasn't able to get what it wanted because they didn't quite. They mean they might even have a majority of of votes in their favor, but not for quite the same level of policies. They would go to. They could just um, co- come up with a policy, and then the courts would like take it the next few steps. Ronald Reagan was famous for saying he was talking about compromise, but about getting things done. About I, I'm willing to take half a loaf, but I'm coming back later for the second half. What the courts were allowing uh, Democrats to do for a long time uh, is pass legislation that gave them the first half of the loaf, and then they didn't have to worry about going back again through the, the Democratic process to get the second half. They just went to the courts, and the courts gave them everything else they, they might have wanted, and then some. Uh, sometimes they skipped that process altogether. And this term, this term's kind of centerpiece case, exemplifies that. In a, in a nutshell, and that is the Dobbs case, which has to do with whether Roe versus Wade is going to be upheld or overturned. Um, regardless of the policy positions behind Roe and, be, and 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 this issue of abortion, anyone who's looking at the text of the Constitution ought to be able to see very clearly. And at the time, it's interesting. A lot of liberal and pro-choice scholars acknowledge this about the decision that the. The Constitution nowhere speaks to abortion. It's not because it didn't exist at the time of the founding. It's something that's existed for thousands of years. Uh, it's not because they didn't have laws that addressed it, because we know that they actually did have laws that, it, that were uh, prohibiting it in, in the in the general common law, the, the law that was in place in England when when uh, the, the people came here originally and that was the background of the founding of the American Constitution. But so, so they knew this existed. They recognized it. It simply wasn't addressed in that document. And you had yet you had a court in 1973 that decided, you know what, this is an issue that's so important and so central for what we think women want or need that we're going to uh, find it here one way or the other. And the way they did so is simply saying, okay, we're gonna, you know, we've got a lot of rights that talk about things like privacy, like you can't be searched, have your unreasonable search and seizure, and you can't have um, people. Quartered at your house without your your uh, your uh, consent, etc. And we're going to find a, a we're going to extend from that a right to this sort of general bodily privacy, and then privacy extends for the right to actually end a pregnancy, which is, is is another huge step in and of itself. So the court, even and even Justice Ginsburg, obviously one of the most liberal members of the court until recently, uh, she agreed that this actually wasn't a very well-founded legal decision. And she actually would have she she thought she thought you could get there through other means. She thought the equal protection laws would get there. But she acknowledged that what the effect of this decision was, and I think this is the effect every time the court takes something away from the democratic process that, that the Constitution, the law left there, was to take an issue that was being hotly debated in American society and had a lot of political act movement going on about it of like how, how are states going to address this issue, they took it out of the hands of the American people. And they constitutionalized it. And what has happened is nearly 50 years of that corrupting the judicial confirmation process, where instead of looking at judges from a more neutral perspective, the background of everyone's mind is, how, how would they rule on this major issue? right? I think if the court rules the way that it is, has been leaked that it was planning on ruling, uh, we will finally have a, the opportunity to take our laws and our Constitution back from a court that thinks it can write them for us. That doesn't mean it's gonna be necessarily, the laws will be pro-life or pro-choice or whatever. I think you'll probably actually see a very wide range on that particular issue. But I think this is is a great case because it exemplifies the type of thing, and and the court has done this in so many different areas, where you have an important question that Americans feel very strongly about on both sides and that the Constitution does not address and that needs to be left to the people. Um, And there are other areas the court has has historically tried to do that. So over the last 50 years, we've seen a a progress of trying to change this tenor in the judiciary, to try to return judges to the idea that they need to be looking at the law and, and consider themselves bound to that. And I think it's also fitting to be looking at this this term because this term marks 30 years since Justice Thomas was confirmed to the court. I unabashedly, my you know, his, he's my favorite justice, and uh, but I think this it's it, looking back at thirty years is a great way of seeing just the amazing progress we've we have achieved. Justice Thomas was confirmed in nineteen ninety one. The first term he sat on the court, uh, he was it, it heard the case Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which famously re-upped Roe versus Wade, it kind of rewrote it. I, it. I would almost hesitate to say it upheld it because it really rewrote the case, but it certainly maintained uh, the idea that the abortion rights are in the Constitution. Um, and he was in the minority on that case. Time and again, in fact, he was in the minority in many cases in a minority of one or two with Just Justice Scalia behind him on a ton of different issues that if you look today, the court has shifted completely on. He was prophetic in so many cases where he would write you know in a concurrence or in a dissent just just by himself and say hey we haven't really considered this thing and but maybe we should be looking at this issue one of them for example was a case that wasn't even really about gun rights but he said you know this is this brings up a question of is there really an individual right to bear arms in the second amendment seems like there might be but we haven't really addressed this issue maybe we should look at that and lo and behold you know it took it took maybe a decade later we get the case you, uh, heller versus you know district of columbia versus heller which actually was my the term i clerked in the court that where the court uh by in a 5-4 margin re, kind of breathe new life into the second amendment said actually yeah this isn't just something this is just some inkblot in the constitution we we have to be able to enforce this and at the time dc had a law that basically said you could not uh own a, a handgun and they said you you have to have the second Amendment has to mean something and and it, it clearly means that you have to have some ability to own a weapon if you if you are um have a right to bear arms now this term again we have yet another case that's going to address this issue in this case um the new york rifle and pistol Uh, club case, it has to do with a New York law that effectively prohibits carrying a gun outside your home in New York unless you have specific threats against you. So they say you can't open carry, uh, but you also can't conceal carry without a permit. You can't get a permit unless you have a specific Threat against you. So some of the plaintiffs in that case, for example, lived in really dangerous neighborhoods. They were they had a lot of experience using with with weapons training, and, and they, they, there was no question that they were competent to do this. It was just like unless you seriously are someone who has a stalker or has some specific threat against them, you, it doesn't matter if you've had you know a lot of crimes in your neighborhood. If you feel like you need it for personal protection, doesn't matter. And so the question is, does the right to bear arms still apply outside your own home? Is it just something that you can? you know, do in your house if someone, if someone breaks in? Or is this really more of a general, right? And does it really apply to everyone equally? Is this something that only applies to a select few elite people who happen to be, you know, high profile enough that someone cares to threaten them, or does it really apply to everyone? Uh, and now, be, you know, thinking, thinking of the shift of, you have this one lone voice saying, hey, maybe the second amendment means something, maybe we should look at that, 30 years later, We have, I I think, based on the hearings, we haven't had the decision yet, there's a lot of decisions, almost 30 decisions still to come this month, so buckle up because it's going to be a really exciting month, and Dobbs is certainly not the only case coming down, but we're going to hear some justices weighing in on that again. I think it's very likely that they're going to overturn that New York law and do so in a way that really respects the original understanding of this. I think it was interesting hearing the arguments because they were they were really delving into, okay, what did this mean? They didn't, sometimes what you have is that justice is just trying to plug in new rights into, into some other judge-created hierarchy, like these, these tiers of scrutiny. Do you get strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny? This kind of goes to the question about how we, how we determine race versus sex discrimination. They've, they've kind of created all of this judge-made stuff on top of the law, but when you heard the oral arguments, the justices were like, well, all of that stuff is kind of made up, right? Why are we going to apply it in a new area of law? Why don't we actually just go back and look at what this originally would have been understood as, and we have to we have to figure out how this. It's a much harder job, really, but it's actually what the Constitution demands, and so that was very encouraging. Another area we've seen huge development in, and then this this term is really showing kind of some of the fruit of that is religious freedom. Uh, we've seen, you know, I think a lot of you, if you've been following the court, have seen some really high profile cases coming up. Yeah, we saw the um, the Trinity Lutheran case was a few years ago. This one, this one was the, the one about playground equipment. This was a, were, Missouri had a policy that, a, a program where you could apply to upgrade your playground. To, so instead of just, you know, wood chips, you had a nice a rubberized surface for the kids not to, not to kill themselves on when they fall off all of the, all the playground equipment. And they said, great, all these schools can apply. And a Lutheran school applied. And even though they ranked on the, on the kind of you know, hierarchy ranking scale with all of the different on their application, all the different things, they ranked one of the top ones. They were denied. And they said, it's because you're a religious school. And our state has a constitutional amendment says we can't fund sectarian enterprises. turns out a lot of states. Have this this type of amendment. It's called a blade amendment, and it came out of an anti-Catholic movement in the late 19th century. And a lot of states incorporated this that were that were getting, writing their constitutions at the time, incorporated that into their constitution. And the court said, "Wait a minute! If you've got a generally applicable program, you can't exclude groups just because they're religious." So that was that was a huge step to finally take take the step and say, "Actually, you you can't do that." And and it's one that is relatively new, even in 2004. Um, the, back when I was in law school, the, the court held, it, it, was, it was this case, it was a scholarship program that went and said, if you, you know, get this certain, certain grades, I think it was the state of Washington, you can get a scholarship. But this, a, a guy named Josh Davey decided he wanted to get the scholarship, but he wanted to use it to go to seminary and study to be a minister. And they said, oh, sorry, you can't, you can't do that. You could study theology just in the abstract, but you can't actually study it if what you want to do is be a minister, because that would, then we'd be supporting religion. The court in that case, In 2004, this is not that long ago, probably for you guys, it sounds long ago, doesn't sound long ago to me. Uh, They held seven to two that the the state could do that. They could just exclude people based on their religion from other programs that's otherwise available to everyone in the state. And now this term, uh, actually last term, we had a a, a case that effectively took a very similar program in California and said, actually, no, you can't. And it was a, it was an extension of what happened in Trinity Lutheran. If you've got a generally applicable program, you can't just exclude religious groups from it. Amazingly, we're hearing this case again this term. Sometimes states take a while to get the message. Maine has a similar program that says if you live in a rural area that's too small to like manage to have its own high school, they'll give you a tuition voucher so you can go to a private school. So you make sure that all the kids have access to public to publicly funded education, even if they're they're living too far out to have a public school near them. They, and then they said, oh, actually, though, you can't use it at a religious school. But they, they had to distinguish it, because last term the court said, no, you can use those kind of things at religious schools. They said, all right, much like Locke versus Davy, which was the, 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 the previous case the court went the wrong way on, they said, oh, you can use it at a religious school. It just can't be one that, like, teaches religion, that, like, really believes the religion they teach. Seems like a funny line to draw, but that's what the, the First Amendment agreed with that Maine that Maine came up with. And based again, we haven't heard the final results in this based on the arguments, it looks like the court is going to uh, strike that law down or not, not strike the law down, but just say you have to have it open to people regardless of what school they choose. And you can't say only kind of non religious religious schools can apply, which is a crazy thing to say anyway. So uh, so that that is a huge progress that we have seen. And we've seen there are some other Really big um, freedom of religion cases, by the way, that are going to be coming down this term as well. That you guys are going to want to keep out an uh, eye out for. Um, one of them was is is the Coach Kennedy case. If you guys seen this one? This is a a. a um, Football coach who used to pray after football games, and the school told him he could not do so. It was after the game was over, but he would go to the the 50-yard line and he would pray. And then some students started joining him. And the state said, "No, this is coercive. They're going to feel like they have to do it or something." And so that would be you're establishing religion by just being a single coach at the high school that prays after games. In some of the games, it wasn't even like the kids from his team who were praying with him was the te- kids from the opposing team were coming. They just wanted to they, they thought this is cool. Let's 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 say a prayer. Thank God for like this great opportunity to play together and have a have a good uh, time. Um, and so the Supreme Court's going to consider uh, whether he has a right not to be fired for uh, exercising his religion even after the game is technically over, uh, so so I think that's going to be another important one to look at. And we had a, we had a case that already has been handed down this term, um, called Ramirez versus Collier, which is a execution case. It has it, it, the the um, man who's being executed sounds it did, did some pretty horrific stuff being executed, but he wanted to have a minister there who could uh, pray with him, which Texas allowed, but they said he can't lay hands on him and he can't pray out loud. He can be there to sort of for moral support, but he can't pray out loud. He just has to pray silently. And the Supreme Court, um, almost all the justices agreed. Justice Thomas wrote and said, you know, this, the way this guy has carried on this case, I actually think is an abuse of the process. And he's, he didn't really believe that the guy was serious about it. So I, I, I haven't read the full history of the case. He's like, you, I, I think he's just trying to do whatever he can to put off his execution. Very possibly true, happens a lot. But um, the, the justices all over, overwhelmingly agreed that there is a right and is a long standing tradition to have audible prayer at an execution and even to have laying on of hands that there are other ways that the the state can make sure that there's not obviously something, you don't want someone that's gonna do something unsafe or interfere with the execution in some way, but just to offer them that religious support. And that is a really, that's a significant um, acknowledgement of religious rights. and, And it's a reminder that our rights don't just apply to nice people, and they don't just apply to people we agree with always. it can be These are rights that apply to even someone who has committed crimes that deserving of death, but they don't forfeit their constitutional rights to freedom of religion in that context. Um, and then another major theme that I think we have seen develop over these last few years is that of stare decisis. This is a term that you're going to hear a lot about after the dobbs decision officially comes down stare decisis is the notion that a case it, once it's been decided we're going to leave that case how it is and it's a, it's a principle that allows you to have consistency in the law so it's not like every you know every few years you're just like wait the law is this no just kidding we're going to interpret it this way. oh just kidding it's this way you, it, so so there is a rational reason to have some consistency the problem comes with what what do you do as a judge if you come to a case that is something that's already controlled by a prior case, but that prior case is just wrong. And um, the court, one, one myth that I think has been perpetuated a lot, um, generally by people who didn't like the way the result came out is to say, wait a minute. It's, it's kind of like, I, I don't know, the rule I always had in cards is card laid, card played, like we're done, you have to leave that, that case how it is. Um, but the fact of the matter is all nine justices, in fact, every, probably every justice in the history of the country has at some point overturned A previous case because there's there are certain conditions under which a case is just so clearly wrong that it's like you don't you shouldn't follow we we don't get stuck in completely erroneous decisions forever, right? And and obviously it is the right thing not to do that. Justice Thomas would always say I didn't I didn't swear an oath to uphold what like, you know, five white men said a hundred years ago about this when they were wrong about it, and that's that is hundred percent true. And when you think of some of the important cases that have been decided incorrectly and then fixed it's things like Plessy versus Ferguson the case that said that separate but equal was just fine and dandy under the Equal Protection Clause and then you know it took longer even than, than Roe who's been around for the court to get back and say actually no that's that is not okay on top of which clearly separate was not equal in those cases but even separate but equal not okay under the under the Constitution and they did that in Brown versus Board of Education it done it on a numerous significant occasions right so um, it, this is going to come into focus, particularly because of the the Dobbs case, which would be overturning, obviously, a major precedent. There's There are some factors that always get considered when you're overturning precedents, like how wrong was it? Uh, what type of decision is it? If they're wrong on like a statute, maybe Congress can fix that. And they've done that before, where they're like, actually, that's not what we meant. You misinterpreted us. We're going to Amend that statute, and then it's fixed. So the court often, if it's a statute that they say, "Ah, I think that was a wrong interpretation, but Congress can still go back and fix that. So we're just gonna, we are gonna stick with that interpretation. With the Constitution, it's a lot harder to fix. So I think they 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 tend to say we have to go back and correct those. And then there's questions of has it messed with other areas of the law? Um, Does it is it something that that it doesn't sit properly with other types of law, and I think we've seen that in the abortion context, um, because there are other areas of the law, like First Amendment law, that kind of they've carved out exceptions to around abortion, or other types of law, like there are states where if you attack a pregnant woman trying to kill her unborn child, then you can go to jail for it, but if she does, then she doesn't go to jail for it. So it's like, wait a minute, what are we? Is this a, is this a person or not? So it, it is it is at a, um, it's in a. It, it doesn't sit well with other areas of the law. There are other areas where the, this court has made great progress in terms of overturning decisions that are incorrect. And so this kind of just fits into a pattern that they have had. There was one that, that was recent having to do with the First mm-hmm. Amendment rights of public employees. They were being forced, in some cases, to join public employee unions that they disagreed with, that were advocating for policies that they, that they politics that they, they disagreed with. And uh, the court overturned a, a longstanding, I think a 40 year old decision. Uh, saying that they they couldn't be uh, forced to join those unions. Uh, and that was just within the last few years. Um, there's another case coming up next term having to do with racial discrimination in admissions by Harvard University, um, which would might have the, see the court overturning a case that had th- kind of said, well, okay, you can discriminate in certain cases in education, but not others. And uh, I think the court might be ready to just say, you know what, actually, as the Chief Justice himself said in a pr- prior case, the best way to stop discriminating discrimination on the race, basis of race is to actually stop discriminating in the basis of race. Let's just let's just stop doing it, <laughs> and and then maybe we'll have have a, a better time of it, right? So so there are a lot of areas you see like that where the court has been moving in that direction. And one other big one, which is kind of seems boringy and in the weeds, but it's actually really important to the way our constitutional system functions, has been a pattern in how the court interprets. Um, administrative law issues. So we have our laws that are passed by Congress, but then there's also most people don't even realize I don't think I learned to like my third year of law school. There's a whole bunch of regulations that just aren't even passed by anyone, but are just passed by like the people in the various departments in the administ- the executive branch. And they, they have the force of law. So if you violate them, you're still, you know, gonna gonna give a federal case against you or something. But you, but they're not; they were never passed by anyone. So sometimes they're just clarifying what the what the law requires. Sometimes the law will say, well, you know, the Secretary of Health and Human Services gets to clarify what the what the standards are for whether you get reimbursed under Medicare or something. But what what the court is now recognizing is if those laws don't give you clear enough guidelines, if they just say, if they just said, for example, thankfully I don't think we have any still in the books that are this vague, but like you know, basically the, the Secretary of, of Health shall shall make laws, make regulations that will promote the public health. If it was that broad, they would now we're having a court saying, you know what, that's crazy because we are supposed to have a system that responds to our elected representatives. The people in the secretary of Health's office, none of them was elected by anyone. They were just appointed by the president or their career public servants. That doesn't make sense. We can't give this a huge blank check to an unelected bureaucracy. And uh, there were there was a series of laws uh, of, of, of Cases rather that I think are the next step in this sort of things that the court is looking at overturning, which had said, okay, if if you have a reg, if you have a regulatory agency like Health and Human Services, I've been saying so, and they're interpreting the law, even if they, you know, if, as long as they're not egregious, long if the law is kind of vague, we're just gonna whatever they say goes. So they could say, oh, this law should be interpreted in this direction, and the courts would be required to follow whatever. They said so. It makes them sort of like their own little mini Supreme Court on all of a, a whole huge swath of law, and I, the so the court is getting ready to kind of roll some of that back. Um, so that that's another area that they're um, that they're starting to uh, to look at. So, uh, you know, the, the bottom line here is we're seeing a court that's really interesting and in transition, and in transition from being a very activist court to being one that is confined to the text in the history of the Constitution and the laws themselves. And that is a great move. That is something that, unfortunately, I think we're seeing in in the short term is causing a huge amount of uh, disruption because there are people who are used to getting their way every time they went to the court, and now they're not getting their way every time they went to the court. So they're very frustrated by this. It's leading, unfortunately, to a lot of intimidation and threats against justices. You probably all saw the news that yesterday, uh, it's the Justice Kavanaugh's house, or maybe was it two days ago now. It's all a blur. It's two days ago. They, they, they arrested a man who was there intent on killing him and had all of the equipment to do it um, because he was upset about this leak in Dobbs and he thought he could change the direction that the court would go. Um, that's a, a tragedy and I'm, I'm so grateful. It was it was really just like the grace of God that it wasn't a greater tragedy than it was because this guy even happened to turn himself in, which is like, wow, what would have happened if he didn't have that last minute you know, switch in, in his, his mind? Um, but it's, it's really, uh, concerning to see that there's people who are advocating for, uh, I think that most people are not advocating for violence. Thank goodness. Right. But there are always crazy people on the fringes, but there are people who are protesting daily in front of the Supreme court justices houses who, if while they don't advocate for violence, they're advocating for, uh, what they would call a lot of impoliteness They They want to be rude. They want to make life difficult for people which in my mind is sort of another way of saying, we want you to rule in these cases, not because you think that the legal result is the right legal result. They're not out there making legal arguments. They're out there making, we're gonna make your life miserable if you don't rule the way we want arguments. That's That's not how the rule of law works. That's not how our justice system works. If you think of a country in which the judges rule in cases because they're fear for their life if they don't. Or they're afraid that they're not gonna be able to take part in society if they rule a different way. That's not how America works. You're, you're describing the, ju- the justice system of like Cuba, Venezuela, right? That is not what we, wa- what, what we stand for in this country. And unfortunately, some of the most extreme voices on the left, and I, think, I don't think it's most people on the left, but I unfortunately it's a louder and more accepted uh, fringe than, than I would like, and it's one that the, um, a lot of Democrat politicians are going along with um, basically would say the ends justify the means and so they're willing to do whatever it takes to intimidate and threaten the court if they think it's going to regain their power over that institution so it's great news that we're making this progress it's stirred up a lot of frustration um, from the left but I'm I'm optimistic that if we continue to have good justices like we like we do and continue this direction ultimately it's going to down downgrade the politics around the court. And what we'll do is simply have to go back to making our arguments to our elected representatives, which is really how the Constitution designed it in the first place. So thank you. And I'm happy to uh, take any of your questions. Uh, Yes, go ahead. Right here. Oh. We have time for just one more question. Oh, no. Just like like Star. Like, I thought I left time. Sorry. Um,
0: Case that I was talking about was a district court
1: case okay that's why I don't know it I'm like
0: yeah um, but I noticed that in her confirmation hearings now justice Con Brown Jackson said that she's an originalist and so it seems like even less conservative justices are now calling themselves originalists which hasn't always been the case so what are the distinguishing factors for you at this point in time
1: yeah so that her confirmation hearing she said a lot of things that were inherently contradictory she actually said she wasn't when when asked directly, she said she was not an originalist or a textualist. But if she, we asked her, how do you interpret the Constitution? She would say according to the text and the original understanding thereof, which is in fact is the definition of what it is to be an originalist. So she said she embraced originalism, but she also said she's not an originalist. And I think in a in a strange way, this is an illustration of the success of the conservative legal movement because. Most Americans across the board actually realize that that is how the Constitution should be interpreted. We want our judges to be faithful to the text of the original meaning. But what we've come to, and and Justice Kagan actually said a very similar thing during her confirmation process, everyone in the room recognized that she was sort of making a joke and she said, oh, we're we're all originalists now. And she's not an originalist. She has criticized originalism in her opinions, but everyone knows that you have to say that. So in in one way, that's really good news. In another way, it means you have to be you can't just listen to some, what someone says. You have to look at how they actually have judged. Um, Judge Jackson is not has not judged as an originalist, and and that shouldn't be surprising. It's it, it, you know it, that's it's simply not. her she, she actually has very little constitutional. Uh, she has very few cases that deal with constitutional issues whatsoever. Uh, so she said in, in many times that she didn't even have a constitutional philosophy. Um, and then when she said when, that she had when it was it was originalism. So I think the bottom line is we've learned this in looking at Republican nominees too. you can't just listen to what they say like, Oh, yes, of course, I'm an originalist, because everyone knows what they're supposed to say. You have to look at you have to look for evidence of that have they actually applied that and then have they actually applied it in cases where it would have been difficult to do so when they would have actually gotten pushback for doing the opposite or when they would have gotten um, when it might might have come to a result that they didn't personally like. You know you're an originalist when you realize the original meaning leads the opposite direction of where your policy instincts go. And so I think it, it, it's not easy necessarily to do that, but I think you have, that's how we have to assess whether that's what someone really um, embraces. We
0: actually have time for just one
1: more. Okay. Uh, I don't even know. I think you're the next hand I saw, but, or, or whoever you can get it to. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I hate having to pick. Thank you very much. I know that's important. I, I, I love all the questions the same. Um, anyway.
0: My question is, so what's happening? Is this a cyclical issue, or do you think it's going to be something kind of terminal, the breaking point where we're doing this addition of law after law after law, but the left is ignoring a lot of prosecution and execution of what's existing? Or are we going to be able to kind of purge that and do the you know, Trump era erase rules and replacement of one? Do you think this is going to be a cycle depending on basically what party in most control, or do you think we're going to kind of have something, you know? more terminal at the end, we're, we're gonna
1: have a breaking point. And we're gonna have to change our system. Uh yeah, so you know, there's some things that we're seeing like the, the for example, the non prosecution of laws that you bring up that, that to my, in my memory and I've obviously you know had, don't know all of Americans it seems to be pretty new just this idea of there's certain laws we're just not going to force those laws so and just announcing it ahead of time like this isn't even just selective prosecution it's just like hey by the way I'm not I'm not enforcing this whole you know swath of, of, of laws and it's causing a lot of criminal issues in a lot of areas of the country um, I think that's something relatively new and that that traces to a specific agenda item of, of George Soros who's funded people who have that that agenda I I'm hoping that that will have gone so far beyond what people are willing to put up with in terms of their own personal safety, that, that there's a pushback on that. And we, there is to some degree like a, a cyclical nature to people saying, hey, wait a minute, we need to, things are really dangerous, we need to be tougher on crime, and then going to the point of being like, hey, wait, maybe we were too tough there. So there is a cyclical nature to it, but I hope to a certain extent we, we learn some lessons from that aspect at the very least and I think it'll be interesting to see if there's any if there's an opportunity for courts to consider you know to what extent announcing ahead of time you're not going to enforce things might count as a- attempting to to um, modify the law itself there this we ran into this a little bit with the DACA legislation, the DACA and the DAPA program under President Obama because that's effectively what he was doing with respect to a lot of immigration laws was just saying, well we have, prosecutorial discretion, which you do, prosecutors have to decide which cases, are they only have a limited number of resources, they have to say, okay, this is like a really bad criminal, we're gonna prosecute this guy, we're not gonna, or we, we have a really good case on this one, we don't really have a lot of evidence here, we're gonna prosecute the ones that we have the best chance of getting in jail, or the ones that we think are the most significant crimes. Um, and But it's a different thing for the government to say ex ante we're just not prosecuting this law at all. And unfortunately, we didn't get a really clear answer on that case because it was argued the term that Justice Scalia passed away. And so after he passed away, the case was just kind of went 4-4, and so it wasn't really decided ultimately by the Supreme Court. But I think that is that is a serious issue that fits into that theme of like making sure that our, our constitutional structure functions as it's supposed to. And I hope the court gets a chance to analyze it in the future. Thank you very much.